carpetbaggers were friendly enough. They often spent their free time drinking the weak wartime beer in local pubs, and many had accepted invitations from villagers to come by for a home-cooked meal. But if asked about what they did, the young men grew tight-lipped and evasive. Once it became clear that their work was a military secret, people stopped asking, as if they knew of some flaw in your family's past, but liked you and respected you enough not to bring it up. Closer examination of the bomber lifting off at 2240 hours that night would have revealed that it was no ordinary liberator. This B-24 was cloaked in a non-reflective black paint. Gun turrets had been removed from the nose, waist, and belly of the fuselage, leaving two gun mountings, one in the top of the fuselage and one in the tail. The crew had been reduced from the standard ten men to eight. Bomb racks had been stripped from the aircraft and replaced by specially designed racks for carrying supply containers. Both the racks and the containers were of British manufacture. A plywood trap door had been fitted over the hole in the floor where the belly gunner's turret usually was, a hole meant to allow parachutists to exit the aircraft one at a time. The Air Force called it the Joe Hole, referring to their universal name for jumpers. Advanced avionics had been added to the plane, as well as a primitive friend or foe identification system. There also was advanced radio equipment and an early radar device designed to help prevent the plane from hitting the ground when flying at low altitudes. Oxygen bottles had been removed. This plane wouldn't be flying high enough to need them. The only light left to burn continuously once a mission was underway was a small one in the navigator's compartment that gave off an eerie green glow, providing just enough illumination for the navigator to read his charts. Seated on the airplane's plywood floor were three young men, parachutists who would jump on the first pass over the drop zone. The leader of the team was a tall, handsome, 29-year-old American Army captain, an aircraft armaments officer before volunteering for duty with the Office of Strategic Services. Bernard Knox, a naturalized citizen of the United States, was a native Briton, a Cambridge graduate, and a veteran of the Spanish Civil War. His second-in-command, a French captain named Paul Lebel, had come from a free French infantry regiment in North Africa, and the third member of the team, Sergeant Gordon Tack, was a British Army radio operator assigned to that country's special operations executive. All three men wore battle dress uniform with a winged patch on the upper sleeve. In the center of the patch's spread white wings was a red circle with the letters S.F for special forces in light blue. Their equipment was an odd mixture. British radios, American M1 carbines and 45 caliber pistols, and British compasses. The men wore canvas money belts stuffed with hundreds of thousands in French francs and a smaller amount of American dollars. Over their uniforms, they wore standard British jump smocks, their pockets crammed with code books and radio crystals. On their heads, they wore British parachutist helmets. On their feet, American jump boots. Positioned above the bomb bay were twelve Type-C containers, man-sized tubular-shaped canisters filled with weapons and other equipment for the resistance fighters. 
These would be dropped during the aircraft's second pass over the planned drop area, followed by 12 more from a second B-24. The containers were stamped from sheet metal with reinforcing ribs on the surface. Each had an opening which ran the length of the container and was fastened closed with three latches. A small compartment at one end held a parachute. Protruding from a hole in the compartment was a static line that was fastened to a bar in the aircraft's interior. When the container left the aircraft, the line would pull out the parachute. Carefully packed in the larger main compartment was a standard load of submachine guns, ammunition, grenades, explosives, radios, boots, and other gear, the impedimenta of guerrilla warfare. The drop zone was a field two miles north of the town of Briuk, near the westernmost tip of the Brittany Peninsula, that dog-ear-like appendage of northwestern France that points into the North Atlantic. The field was ideal for receiving a parachute drop of men and equipment, a rolling pastoral stretch of countryside with no high-tension wires or other obstacles on the field itself or along the plane's approach path. The previous evening's French-language news broadcast by the BBC had been followed, as it was every evening, by coded personal messages intended for various French resistance groups. Nonsensical phrases that were pointless to anyone but those who knew their hidden meanings. Jacques has a tall brother. Or, the first snow fell in November. Or some other such silliness. One such message had meaning for the members of the Finisterre resistance, who picked up the BBC broadcast on a hidden radio in defiance of an edict by the German occupation authorities. One of the personal messages informed the members of the impending arrival of the three-man team and had directed that the reception committee, the men and women who would await the parachutists at the drop zone, should use a light to flash a prearranged letter in Morse code as the aircraft approached, indicating that the drop zone was secure, that no Germans were in the immediate vicinity. Monsieur Arzel, deputy police chief of Kemper, a large market town to the southwest, organized the reception committee. Around midnight, members of the resistance from nearby villages converged on the drop zone and began preparation for the team's arrival. A small truck and a few horse-drawn wagons were pulled out of sight into the nearby woods, partly to remain hidden from anyone who might pass by, and partly to keep the horses from being frightened by the low-flying aircraft. Armed men took up positions on approaching roads and trails to provide security against possible German patrols. Other men broke up into small groups for retrieving the metal containers packed with arms and ammunition and loading them onto the wagons. It usually took four to handle each container. Still others prepared three small bonfires. These were arranged to form the corners of a large triangle to mark the drop zone and were not to be lit until the aircraft could be heard approaching from the expected direction. When all was ready, the reception teams hid along the edge of the woods. Shortly before one o'clock in the morning, the drone of the plane was heard and the bonfires were lit. Once the unmistakable shape of the Liberator loomed in the pale, moonlit sky, a man standing on the drop zone aimed a flashlight skyward with a tubular attachment to hide its beam from anyone but those in the bomber. He blinked the appropriate dashes and dots to indicate the prearranged letter.
Aboard the Liberator, an Air Corps sergeant, called the Dispatcher, stood near the Joe Hole. Only minutes earlier he had removed the plywood trap door in the floor of the bomber. The pilot, however, unable to spot any lights marking the drop zone, circled for twenty minutes searching for the triangle of small bonfires, the center of which would be his target. While the triangle lighting system of marking drop zones was common, it was only one of four methods used during the war. Special operations piloting was something more than an acquired skill, and it demanded the very best pilots. It was low-level, seat-of-the-pants flying in a ponderous heavy bomber designed for formation flying at high altitudes. The B-24 could be cumbersome at these lower altitudes. The machine had to be manhandled. After circling for a time, the pilot informed the dispatcher that he had finally spotted the fires. Then the pilot leveled the plane off and began his run-in, at an altitude of around 600 feet above ground level, lowering the flaps halfway and slowing the bulky plane to about 125 miles per hour, barely above stall speed. For everyone aboard the airplane, nervous tension rose in proportion to the slackening of the engines. With the bomber on final approach, the sergeant shouted, Running in! Loudly enough to be heard over the groan of the four huge Pratt and Whitney engines. The dispatcher then busied himself rechecking the static lines leading from the men's parachutes, which he had moments before hooked to an anchorage in the floor just behind the Joe hole. Within seconds, a red light above the seated men came alive with a dim, ruby glow, and, on its cue, the sergeant yelled, ACTION STATIONS! Captain Knox scooted to the edge of the opening, dangling his feet in the slipstream...